It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Events over the past year have shone a light on racial inequality across the globe. Australia is no exception. This nation's journey towards a more just, equitable and reconciled identity still has a long way to go. With that in mind, and in a spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging, and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. I asked the Prime Minister, how good is Australia? Please explain. Life is changing in Australia because the pub is shut. Sucked in, fellas. I actually find it gobsmacking. I will call it a personal nightmare. Tell the Prime Minister to go and get... This is changing all around the world. I accept your nomination. The authority is total. And I rejected that approach. It's all about acknowledging how far we've come. He's all tip and no iceberg. Like a really scary wooden puppet. He was drunk. That's not true. Not now, not ever. You're a classic space invader. A social climbing sycophant. You should be ashamed of yourselves. Oh, fair shake of the sauce bottle, mate. In case of democracy, very good. <laughs> do you ever do those nine-letter puzzles in the paper? You've got to make as many four-letter words as you can, and you've got to include the middle letter in the nine-letter grid. I do it sometimes when I should be doing something else. It becomes a habit looking for anagrams. And I was looking at Ross Garno's important new book, Reset, the other day, and it occurred to me that the word reset also makes the word steer and the word trees. Ross Garno is a former diplomat and economic advisor to Prime Ministers. He's also a well-known public intellectual. He's Professor of Economics at the University of Melbourne. He's been a long-term advocate for climate change. He's the author of countless essays, articles and reports, probably the most famous of which is the Garno Climate Change Review. And his most recent book was Superpower, which charted a way for Australia to lead the world in renewable energy. I'm Mark Kenny from ANU's Australian Studies Institute, and I'm very happy to welcome Professor Garno to Democracy Sausage. Ross Garno, that's a happy coincidence, is it not, that your latest title, Reset, and those anagrams, Trees and Steer, uh, come from that word as well? Because I guess what you're advocating is that we do a fair bit of steering of the economy, and uh, and, and let's face it, uh, we've already got rid of too many trees, as you've pointed out before, and uh, we need to stop doing that as well. I've not only stopped getting rid of trees, an important theme of the book, a chapter, is about uh, how much uh, economic activity we can uh, develop uh, becoming a, a, a repository of carbon uh, for, for, the, for the world through uh, utilising our opportunity to grow biomass and uh, capture carbon in the landscape. It's even better than uh, you're suggesting. It's also steer and uh, uh, and. Uh, the castration of Australia by uh, taking away uh, opportunity for, for growth is also one of the possibilities because the book's about the choice we'll make about uh, uh, after the pandemic uh, about whether we uh, uh, restore uh, Australia on a, 
on uh, full employment and rising incomes or go back to the dog days, uh, 2013 to 19? Yes, we'll go to the actual formal title of the book with its subtitle as well. It's called Reset, Restoring Australia After the Pandemic Recession. And so we'll go to those uh, issues of the dog days between, which you say are between really the GFC in eight oh nine and this pandemic and, and, and underperformance during that time. But let me first kick off with just a couple of opening thoughts uh, because you've written this about this this moment that Australia has. I guess the world has it. Um, it's the nature of a global pandemic, but Australia certainly has it in terms of a whole lot of policy settings. Two opening thoughts about uh, about the pandemic. It's ongoing and could yet return to our shores in a serious way. That remains a threat. But the other one that's interesting is that we are already out of technical recession. You know, there was a lot of warning about how bad this was going to be. It seemed sort of apocalyptic almost at, at points, particularly if you're living in Melbourne uh, through a good deal of 2020. Um, and yet we've seen the economy bounce back, at least on the figures. We've seen employment growth quite strong uh, and we've seen, you know, things like housing prices rocketing. And there's a, there's a real sense that that the recession for the economy was short and sharp and it's already over. Well, we did have a recession, the first time we've had one for uh, 28 years, Um, uh, and uh, it was a deep one, sharp and deep. In the first half of last year, we had a very large decline in economic output and employment, Uh, the first recession uh, since the recession of uh, 91. Uh, So so it, it was real. Uh, then uh, uh, the government, uh, in my view, appropriately uh, uh, spent a quarter of a trillion dollars on uh, debt-funded uh, uh, government expenditure and tax cuts, and uh, uh, you can't spend that much uh, funded by uh, uh, debt uh, without getting a very strong response, and we've got the appropriate response. Uh, we've got the uh, uh, quick movement uh, out of recession that... Uh, uh, that John Maynard Keynes in 1936 told us to expect. Yes, well, that's right. We saw everyone become Keynesians really uh, for, for a period of time and I guess will remain so for a while because, as you say, the economy has been propped up by a great deal of um, of public spending. Nonetheless, uh, even though it was a sharp and, as you say, deep recession, uh, it was one that was imposed by sort of exogenous factors rather than deep structural problems within the economy. This was a, a pandemic that came along and forced a shutdown of a whole lot of commercial activity. Is that one of the other reasons why we've then been able to come out of it quickly? I'm not sure that that's uh, the, the main reason, Mark. I think we, without that very strong stimulatory action, uh, I, I think we would have been uh, experiencing uh, uh, very high unemployment and, uh, uh, well, I, in my view, we still got high unemployment, but even much higher unemployment and uh, uh, lower output, even uh, in the circumstances we were in, if we hadn't had that very big uh, stimulus, uh, the very strong government action, uh, job keeper, job seeker, other payments uh, programs, uh, all uh, gave a very big boost to economic activity, and they're the reasons we bounced out quickly. A lot of other countries have bounced out quickly because they did the, did very similar things. Uh, China, uh, uh, even bigger than us as a proportion of the economy, so they've had even stronger growth than us. The US now, uh, with Biden, 
doing it bigger and uh, uh, more strongly than us as a proportion of the economy. So the U.S. will have very strong growth this year. Um, Keynesian policies work in the right in the circumstances in which uh, Keynes advocated them. Uh, very big budget uh, deficits uh, funded by uh, a reserve bank creation of money uh, can give you a very strong growth in output and employment. That's why uh, we came quickly out of recession. Yes. Okay. Well. So, but nonetheless, even though we've come out of that recession, we've still got that that debt, and we can talk about that a bit later. But um, it, it interests me the role that the reserve banks played in this as well. Uh, we've seen interest rates go down. They were they, they've been at record lows now for some time. Uh, we're dealing with interest rates these days that seem to be permanently in this in this or more or less permanently. We've had Philip Lowe, the the governor of the Reserve Bank, indicate that he doesn't expect interest rates to start moving for a scale of years, a couple of years, maybe 2024, before we see uh, interest rates going back up. So what's your assessment of the of, of whether the Reserve Bank acted first quickly enough and also whether that prediction of, of interest rates staying where they are is, um, is going to hold? We've got very low global interest rates, uh, certainly right through the developed world, um, uh, at the moment and have had for some time uh, for deep structural reasons. Uh, through the 21st century, uh, p- around the world, uh, people have been saving a higher proportion of their incomes and 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 uh, our business has been tending to invest uh, a, a lower proportion of, uh, of total expenditure. So we've been moving towards an excess of savings in the global economy. Uh, and uh, that gives you low uh, long-term interest rates in markets. We were slower, our Reserve Bank was slower to react to that reality uh, than other central banks. And that's one reason why uh, we performed very poorly in what I call the dog days. Uh, between the China resources boom, which ended about 2012, 2013, and the pandemic in 2020, during those seven years, the dog days, uh, uh, Australia had the lowest uh, growth in uh, output per person of the de- developed countries, lower even than Japan, which we think of as a poor performer. Uh, we had stagnant uh, a real uh, household income per person, very unusual over a seven-year period. In fact, uh, uh, if we had comparable data, it might be unprecedented uh, since white settlement. Uh, and uh, uh, at the same time, stagnant unemployment stuck five point something, which I think is still uh, high unemployment. Uh, and I contrast that in the book with what happened in the US, which started in 2013 with uh, unemployment uh, two or three percentage points higher than Australia uh, and ended the period with uh, unemployment a couple of percentage points lower, right down to 3.5 percent. Uh, we, we perform poorly on unemployment and even worse on underemployment through those periods, uh, through that period, those seven years, um, uh, underemployment, people not being able to work as many hours uh, as they wanted to, although they were classified as employed, um, uh, underemployment grew and grew uh, through that period. So it was a pretty bad period and uh, I present uh, uh, data comparing what happened in Australia with the US uh, and attribute a substantial part of uh, uh, that unemployment, uh, uh, unemployment being stuck at five point something to Australia running 
tighter monetary policy than other developed countries. Uh, I think that was a mistake. And the really good news is that uh, uh, in response to the pandemic recession, no doubt to some of the critique uh, of earlier policy, uh, the, the Reserve Bank has got much closer now uh, to uh, the, the, the uh, monetary policies being uh, followed in other developed countries. We're not not an outlier the way that we were. Uh, we're st- we've still got uh, tighter monetary policy than the average for developed countries. We've still got positive um, uh, uh, interest rates, cash rates, um, uh, and rates out the first uh, few years of the curve uh, uh, when uh, uh, half of the GDP in developed countries is in countries with negative interest rates. Uh, we've got... Uh, We've now joined the rest of the world in what's called quantitative easing, funding government debt through uh, uh, the Reserve Bank purchase of government securities, in effect uh, creating money. Uh, that all helps us to get back in line with other developed countries. If we stay in line with uh, other developed countries, uh, we'll have taken away uh, one of the barriers to uh, getting to genuine full employment. What's your explanation for why we were running that tighter monetary policy through that period? Is it just simple kind of conservatism? Was it um, resting on our laurels to some extent as we, uh, you know, you made the point before about how we had our first recession after 28 years of unbroken growth. So that became part of the kind of almost political, um, you know, folklore of the country that we were an economic success story do you think we were just aiming too low and that we should have been, our policymakers, both government and the Reserve Bank, should have been aiming for uh, to eat further into that pool of unemployed and underemployed, be a bit more adventurous? Oh, we were certainly aiming too low. We stopped even talking about full employment. The Reserve Bank Act, uh, which was drawn up uh, uh, in, in the recent memory of the Great Depression uh, in a series of stages under uh, Chifley and Menzies, uh, uh, that, that put uh, full employment as the central objective uh, of the uh, Reserve Bank. Uh, the words full employment don't appear in the monthly statements on monetary policy all the way through the dog days until the, the end of 2019, yeah, uh, not a mention of it. Now, since uh, uh, the, the onset of the pandemic, most uh, uh, monthly statements after the uh, monthly board meetings of the Reserve Bank uh, mention the words full employment. That That's uh, uh, a welcome uh, readjustment of ambition. Uh, also, uh, uh, we were uh, uh, complacent. Uh, 28 years of continuous economic growth uh, led all, uh, all parts of our society, our, our political leadership, uh, but but the community and our important economic institutions like the Reserve Bank too think we were doing okay. But when you look closely, that 28 years breaks down into three periods, three rather unequal periods. The first decade, uh, what I call the productivity boom in the book, uh, uh, was uh, a period where growth in incomes was uh, spurred by rising productivity uh, uh, in the in the book, I talk about the period from about 2002 to 2012 uh, uh, having rising incomes per person, uh, increasing prosperity, being driven by the China resources boom. I call that period the China resources boom. Uh, after uh, 2012, the, uh, 20, in the period 2019, our growth came mainly from expanding population, um, a majority of it from immigration. 
uh, and uh, with less and less uh, uh, focus on really genuinely uh, um, uh, immigration of people with high value in the labour markets, more temporary migration, less uh, permanent migration. Uh, that gave us growth in total output without any growth in living standards for uh, for Australians. And uh, that's why I call that period the dog days. Um, we had 28 years of unbroken economic growth, a marvellous achievement. Recessions do great damage and uh, it was a huge achievement to avoid it. But uh, uh, we, we kidded ourselves that we were still doing uh, pretty well uh, when, in fact, uh, we were no longer doing as well as other developed countries on the measures that really matter for the community. And it's interesting that you mention uh, immigration and you also mentioned the China resources boom. Uh, China's obviously been a key aspect of Australia's economic success right through this period, if not as, as acutely as it was in that period up to sort of around 2012. But the pandemic, of course, has come along as well and we've we've essentially stopped that immigration. We've had our border closed for the last 12 months, a bit, bit longer. It just strikes me that, uh, that that's a kind of a double whammy, isn't it? We, we, we seem to be doing fine at the moment, but we, we don't have that immigration and we don't have, we have a deteriorating bilateral relationship with China. I think you're a former uh, ambassador to Beijing uh, many years ago. In fact, I remember you telling the press club once that you hit a six onto the temple of onto the roof of the temple of heaven, uh, which is uh, a pretty pretty damn good story in itself. Uh, feel free to tell us about that. But um, uh, is it right that we've sort of got both both these uh, engines or drivers of growth, uh, China and and immigration, are both in, in a slightly perilous state at the moment? Well, uh, you've, you've asked me, you've invited <laughs> me to comment on, on the six. Well, it wasn't me. Uh, we had a lanky oh. West Indian uh, batting number 11 for Australia. Uh, we, we had a very active, vigorous uh, uh cricket league we used to call it the world league uh, uh, in Beijing uh, and we were allowed uh, by the authorities to use the uh, cricket cr- well it wasn't a cricket ground an open space alongside the temple of heaven uh, we, we were very successful in recruiting uh, uh, people who knew how to swing a bat and uh, throw a ball uh, fr- from the uh, Commonwealth countries that didn't have big enough embassies to uh, run a cricket team. Right. Uh, so we, we had this big West Indian and he hoved uh, uh, a big pull onto the, the uh, roof of the Temple of Heaven and uh, the Chinese uh, authorities uh, didn't see the humour in it and they banned us from that. And so from then on we were playing in a muddy field on the edge of <laughs> Beijing. But uh, we, we do uh, face some uh, headwinds now. Certainly uh, the change in immigration means that for these couple of years we're not going to get growth from uh, immigration and growing population. I think that's a big and good opportunity to uh, reset immigration policy, to think again what we want to get out of that. I, and uh, uh, I, I say in the book that I think that um, we made a mistake in uh, shifting from the successful historical pattern of immigration to Australia after the Second World War, really until the end of the uh, uh, 20th century, where we focused on permanent migration And we shifted the focus to temporary migration. It began in 1996 with the 457 visas and was extended to a lot of other categories of temporary migrants. Yeah, that's the uh, skilled migrant visa, right, the 457? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, 
uh, temporary migrants yeah. and uh, went away from that old pattern of uh, uh, of uh, immigrants to Australia being on a path to citizenship and when we used to invest in in their settling in as Australians, uh, uh, becoming part of Australian institutions, uh, uh, learning the language because they were going to be here forever. Um, I, I think that uh, the shift to temporary migration was associated in practice with a shift away from val- economically valuable skills. Uh, it wasn't the intention. It certainly wasn't uh, what well, it may not have been the intention. It certainly wasn't how the policy was articulated, but it's what happened in practice. So is that the decline of manufacturing, do you mean? Would that be a, an archetype of what you're saying, the decline of manufacturing industries here? We weren't bringing in people to, to skilled people to do those sorts of jobs? No, I don't think it's particularly related to that, uh, but um, a whole lot of jobs that used to be done by relatively low-skilled Australians, sometimes young Australians while they were accumulating other skills that came to be performed by temporary migrants. Uh, 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 Well-off couples uh, came to uh, expect that they'd be able to employ uh, uh, au pairs from uh, uh, overseas at very low rates to uh, look after their kids. uh, r- rural uh, uh, employment became uh, the preserve overwhelmingly of uh, um, uh, temporary uh, migrants so that uh, the unskilled labour force of rural Australia uh, was left out. Business in Australia lost its interest in and capacity to impart skills uh, to young Australians. So I think that that was a mistake. And uh, I, I think the uh, cessation of uh, uh, migration for a year or two gives us a chance to rethink that. I'm suggesting we go back uh, to moderate levels of uh, immigration, the sort of levels we had in the 90s, adding about half a percent per annum uh, to our population. That still gives us far higher immigration as a share of the existing population than uh, uh, other developed countries, uh, uh, or, or almost all other developed countries. Uh, but uh, uh, that shift and a shift back to emphasis on permanent migration and skills, uh, I think, uh, will will help uh, uh, Australia get to full employment with rising incomes. Let's take a quick break there and be back in one moment. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm Sharon Bessel. Policy Forum Pod is the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. Each week we bring together expert analysis to tackle the big issues facing our region and to propose policy solutions. It's insightful, it's positive and it's always fun. Policy Forum Pod is out every Friday. You can find it on iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your pods. Or find us at policyforum.net slash podcasts. Welcome back. Uh, now, I took a break then, Ross, when you were halfway through answering a two-part question. You were about to address the China side of it, so away you go. Yes, uh, 
Uh, I mentioned that uh, if we're going to uh, have rising incomes uh, and full employment uh, through the 2020s, so we're going to have to have quite strong growth in uh, uh, what I call trade-exposed industries, especially the export industries. And, and uh, um, we face some pretty big headwinds there. Uh, as you mentioned, uh, Mark, a lot of our export growth has come from uh, exports to China in the last uh, uh, three decades, especially the last two decades. Uh, China now accounts for uh, the, the value of exports, or in 2019, it accounts for the value of exports of our next nine trading partners. If you count Hong Kong as part of China, it's as much as the next 11. And that's not the result of governments uh, pushing it in that direction or business uh, overlooking other opportunities. Uh, government from time to time put special efforts into developing non-China alternatives uh, Huge effort at the time of the Australia-US Free Trade Agreement. Uh, uh, earlier on, uh, I remember the Hook government put a lot of effort into uh, trade expansion with uh, India, with Japan, with Korea. Uh, uh, it's just that uh, uh, the, the, the structure of the Chinese economy created uh, lots more opportunity. Uh, now, we do face several headwinds to our exports. We're going to need stronger growth in exports than in the total economy if we're going to have rising incomes, Uh, but there are big headwinds against that. One is the problem in relations with China. Uh, That's not going to go away easily, and I sort of take uh, some of the current problems as part of uh, what we have to live with for the time being. Um, Uh, I do point out that uh, China's growth is very good for Australian trade and Australian prosperity, even if uh, we're we're not getting access, direct access to the Chinese market on as good a terms as Europeans or Americans or New Zealanders or uh, other or Asians. Uh, 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 We won't get some of the high value uh, trade, some of the high margins trade, but we still benefit from strong growth in China because China importing more beef from America, more lamb from uh, New Zealand, uh, more uh, oil seeds uh, from Southeast Asia, uh, um, more food of all kinds from Europe, uh, makes uh, raises the price of food in those countries uh, and so makes us more competitive against them, uh, against New Zealand, more competitive in the Australian market because uh, the price of lamb uh, rises in uh, New Zealand. So, uh, we shouldn't see uh, the problems in the bilateral relationship as making the growth of China irrelevant to our exports. Uh, we can still get a lot of benefit even if we're cut out of some of the high-value direct trade. Um, but the, uh, the the other head, but it's still a headwind. We've got to recognise it's not as, things are not as good as they would be if we had direct access as in the past. Uh, for uh, other areas of trade, 22% of our exports in 2019 were fossil energy, uh, coal and uh, gas. Uh, fossil energy uh, will not be growing uh, in, in the period ahead because of the commitment of the rest of the world to uh, moving towards zero emissions. Uh, so uh, we've got to get our growth from elsewhere. Uh, before the uh, uh, pandemic recession, during the dog days, the most dynamic part of our exports and and the third largest export industry in the in the late teens was uh, education services and uh, the fracturing of the financial base of the universities through the pandemic uh, with the failure to uh, provide emergency uh, support uh, from job keeper and in, in and in the in the other ways that that other service industries like casinos were given uh, will mean that uh, 
it will be a long time before the universities can contribute um, uh, anything like the, uh, uh, the the elements of growth that they were contributing uh, in, before the recession. So they're very big headwinds. Uh, but uh, uh, the last a couple of the later chapters in the book uh, talk about uh, alternative avenues that can help us overcome those headwinds. Well, let's just stick with what you said about universities for a moment, though, and, and you're speaking to be from University of Melbourne. I'm from ANU, uh, so, you know, have it out on the table that uh, we, we could be accused of talking our own book here a bit. But, um, you know, we've often heard this term, the clever country. We've been well aware of the idea of uh, the, of first world economies being, you know, playing to their strengths with, uh, you know, world-class education systems and the like. As you say, it's been our third largest export earner, uh, higher education, education services, third or fourth. It's uh, sort of bumped around in there. It's extremely important. And yet there was a decision taken right at the start of the government assistance, which you, uh, you know, quite rightly lauded in terms of its uh, Keynesian impact on the economy and a whole range of sectors. But higher education was specifically carved out of that. Uh, there was, uh, to be fair, uh, a billion dollar um, grants program that that, uh, that came to universities. But um, it's a major employer. It's a major driver of of uh, um, export income, and it's a major driver of the long term economic prospects of this country. I guess two questions: Why do you think that it was exclu- the university sector was excluded? And two: Has the government condemned us to a kind of an economic version of long COVID as a result of uh, the damage done to universities? Yeah, well, I, I don't know why I was excluded. It does seem anomalous. But I'd say in defence of the government that they had to put together these packages very quickly and uh, and it's inevitable, I suppose, that there'll be mistakes. There were other mistakes, um, uh, allowing a JobKeeper to uh, be uh, allocated to companies who said they were going to have big losses of revenue and then not having a mechanism for clawing it back if they didn't have those losses uh, <laughs> is one mistake. Uh, the exclusion of the university, I think, is a really big mistake. Uh, but... Uh, all those decisions had to be made very quickly and uh, in the nature of things uh, there wasn't time for the usual uh, assessment and discussion. Uh, so the important thing is that uh, uh, the government faces up to mistakes and corrects them so that uh, they don't become permanent manacles on uh, 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 around the legs of the Australian economy, but that's what actually has happened, is it not? I mean, uh, in a, you know, there was plenty of commentary around at the time about it, so it wasn't like they didn't have uh, real-time feedback about the design of the package from the beginning. Now, okay, they make a decision about that, but there've been, I think, twenty-one thousand job losses. Um, you know, it's 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 really been huge. Um, and it's been huge, and the effects will go far beyond just the macroeconomic impact of yeah. all that employment and income. Uh, I point out in the book that uh, uh, that Australia's standing in the international education community is is uh, uh, extraordinarily high for our population. We've got six of the top hundred uh, 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 universities as rated in the normal uh, quality r- rankings. Uh, China has two. Uh, uh, Canada has much less than us. Uh, very few European countries, including those with much bigger populations, have anything like us. Uh, we, we stand out for uh, quality, and that's been an enormous source of uh, advantage for us. It means that the uh, the, the, the the children of the uh, uh, the, the, the leaders of Asia. 
have, have looked to Australia for education of their children, uh, uh, whether we're talking about the business elites, the bureaucratic elites, the political elites or the intellectual elites. Uh, Australia's been very highly regarded. We're, uh, we're up there not all that uh, different in uh, size as a market for education for uh, Asian students uh, from uh, the the UK and US, one of the big three in the world. And the standing of our universities, our rankings have been very important to that. People sometimes criticise the rankings. Sure, they are a bit arbitrary, but, but they're real in terms of perceptions. And that's given us a lot of influence. Well, I, if we don't correct the mistakes uh, we, that were made, and, and, and I don't want to uh, 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 presume to understand the, the, the reasoning, but, but if we don't correct whatever the reasoning was, uh, then um, the, we're, we're going to put ourselves at a disadvantage uh, uh, in relations with the rest of Asia at a time when uh, uh, soft power competition with China is particularly uh, Acute, but also uh, it weakens um, a lot of our other export capacity. I mentioned how one of the responses of the universities uh, to the uh, 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 to the, the the fracture of the business uh, models of the universities, the financial difficulties, has been to c- cut back on geosciences. Well, that was one of the areas where we were top of the world, uh, and uh, we've cut back dramatically. And and it was our strength in that area that caused us to be the the place that uh, trained uh, the leaders in in geology, geosciences, geophysics, uh, a lot of the disciplines that are crucial to uh, uh, successful mining industry and mining company and are going to be very important in the zero emissions world economy. So uh, from a lot of of, points of view, uh, unless we correct that error, uh, we'll uh, uh, pay a very high economic price. Now, I guess the whole logic of your book reset is that you know this is a this this pandemic crisis is a um, an opportunity really to revisit a, a range of these uh, key areas of our political economy and make make changes. Is this an economist's version of uh, the political axiom "never waste a crisis"? Is that essentially what you're saying that we have this moment and we can we, we you know we've been forced to sit back and look at some of these settings. Uh, and and now's the chance to do those things. Yes, I think it is. Uh, it is an opportunity to reset, uh, to reflect on our uh, underperformance in the years before the uh, pandemic recession. Reflect on why uh, we had lower uh, output, lower growth in output per person even than Japan and much lower than the United States or the average for the OECD, uh, reflect on why we were satisfied with five-point-something percent unemployment uh, when uh, the US was down to 3.5 without uh, inflation, Uh, to reflect on why uh, we were uh, satisfied with uh, underemployment rising and rising. Uh, It's also uh, an an opportunity to... uh, uh, reset fiscal and monetary policies. Uh, we've already talked about the monetary policy, and uh, alongside that, uh, uh, we there's all, there's been a very substantial reset of fiscal policy. The uh, uh, breaking of the shibboleths of uh, the the period after the uh, uh, global financial crisis that was so critical of the fiscal policies that caused us to avoid a recession, and then by pulling back on. Uh, uh, government expenditure uh, too fast, 
pulling back on deficits too fast meant that we uh, uh, had an additional drag on employment growth on top of um, the primary cause of underperformance, monetary policy. It's a time to to, uh, uh, fundamentally uh, 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 re-examine fiscal and monetary policy, and I suggest in the book uh, a big corporate tax reform uh, that uh, w- w- would shift the balance of uh, uh, the taxation burden uh, away from companies that are investing and innovating towards companies that are sitting on their laurels. And Let, uh, Let's go to that then because that's a really interesting one and I want to go to, to the full employment question as well, uh, but just go to this uh, change in the corporate tax uh, uh, model that you're advocating. You're, you're saying that uh, we should tax cash flow rather than uh, taxing activity or what was it, revenue before? Well, we're, we're taxing accounting profits before. Uh, yes. That, that, that's been the – that was the old definition of profit uh, and uh, it's the way we've done corporate uh, tax uh, pr- pretty well from the beginning. But it's got a number of uh, unsatisfactory features um, and the unsatisfactory features have uh, grown more and more as, uh, as it's become harder to uh, – uh, to actually uh, pin down the uh, the place in which uh, um, uh, com- companies earn their profits uh, uh, and uh, lots of advantages uh, in this uh, economy from being a, f- a foreign enterprise that can uh, uh, avoid or evade Australian taxation by uh, generating uh, income in uh, 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 nominally in tax havens, which which aren't taxed, and then that induces Australian companies to restructure themselves, so a lot of their income goes to uh, tax havens. Um, uh, the the biggest element of the change is uh, the immediate deductibility of all capital expenditure and uh, the offsetting of uh, negative cash flows with a payment equal to the tax rate. Uh, which uh, would be uh, a very powerful incentive to investment and innovation, uh, that's balanced in its effect on the revenue by the denial of uh, interest payments and other financing payments as a tax deduction uh, and also uh, uh, denial of um, uh, deductions for imported services unless it can be shown that uh, uh, the the taxpayer or that uh, the the, the imports... uh, involved uh, costs that uh, uh, were undertaken on behalf of uh, producing these services for the taxpayer. Uh, all of that uh, has would, those changes would have the effect of uh, uh, substantially shoring up uh, the corporate tax base against uh, opportunities for uh, evasion and, uh, uh, and avoidance uh, and also shift the burden away from companies that are innovating, investing and uh, uh, contributing to future productivity growth. Yeah, so you sort of you describe a lot of uh, taxation or you, you're proposing to make a change that would actually shift that burden towards companies that are actually, you know, sort of living off earnings of established assets, so essentially yes. economic rent as you call it. Yeah, yeah that's right and uh, uh, I've got a lot of detail about how that would work in the book. It's based on... Uh, work that I've done with uh, colleagues uh, uh, over a number of years, uh, some of it published uh, in the Australian Economic Review and and, and elsewhere, uh, uh, and and I've got a chapter in the book uh, explaining how that would all work and why it would be so helpful to the economy that we want to build in future. 
Now, can we go to this question of um, of uh, full employment? You've mentioned it a few times. It's obvious one of the key levers you think we should uh, change in this. In this, you mentioned in the book a a, a, a um, one of the key resets. Uh, there is talk now of w- what constitutes full employment, and I suppose that's the threshold question because I think a lot of us were told over a period of of time that that essentially full employment was somewhere around 5%, perhaps 4.5%. There's a bit of rethinking going on about that now. As you say, the US prior to the pandemic was at 3.5% unemployment. Do you think that's what we ought to be shooting for, that kind of uh, low level of unemployment with the three in front of it? I think we should be recognising we won't have full employment until the labour market is so tight that uh, wages are rising quite strongly in the labour market. Uh, and uh, and that that is generating inflation uh, at a rate that threatens to take us above the two point three percent two to three percent uh, target range for inflation on a sustainable basis. Uh, uh, that's where the U.S. Federal Reserve has gone. Uh, um, uh, Powell, the, uh, the 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 chair of the uh, Board of Governors, uh, has said that. Uh, because the U.S. undershot its inflation target for a lot of years, it should overshoot for enough years to, uh, to, to, to mean that on average they've kept to it. That's, That's an interesting idea. We've been undershooting as well, of course. I mean, we're not in the 22 to 3% range either. And you mentioned before that we don't have full employment mentioned in a lot of those Reserve Bank decisions, but we always have that inflation target mentioned because that's been the driver of uh, monetary policy. So even the language, I think, needs to change in emphasis, doesn't it? It does, and the really good news, uh, Mark, is that it has changed. Uh, there's been, in in the last year and a half, there's been historic change in the stance of monetary policy. As I mentioned before, uh, the monthly uh, statements uh, that the governor makes after board meetings on monetary policy now mostly in- include reference to full employment. They mm. didn't. Yeah. from the beginning of 2013 until nearly the end of 2019. And he's even made sort of comments about at various times, some of them reasonably oblique, but sort of entreating workers to get a bit more bolshy, a bit more militant and to demand higher wages. I mean, they've been – so the banks gradually come to recognise that the, this stubbornly flat wages growth situation we've had needs to change, um, but with 5.5% yes, and, 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 and the main institution for doing something about that was the Reserve Bank. Uh, workers can be as bolshy as they like, but they won't get wage increases unless the labour market's tight. Yeah. Uh, supply and demand works, economics based on some uh, some premises that are as true now as they ever were. Uh, and uh, the definition of full employment should be the, uh, the, the level of unemployment uh, at which um, inflation is threatening to take off and accelerate uh, uh, at a rate that takes us sustainably above the uh, 2 to 3% range. Now, the Reserve Bank's language is getting close to that, very different from uh, before. This is an historic change. It's supported by a historic change in uh, approach to what what's called quantitative easing, easing the, the central bank's uh, uh, purchase of government securities, uh, in effect, uh, funding uh, Commonwealth and state uh, uh, debt, um, uh, preventing uh, increased uh, Commonwealth and state debt, leaving, leading to higher interest rates in the market. Uh, we still uh, haven't gone all the way to the average of other developed countries, but the change that's occurred 
is an historic change. And I said in an opinion piece, uh, piece in the AFR last week that uh, the change has been so big uh, that uh, if we don't get back to full employment and uh, rising incomes, and if the Reserve Bank stays where it is on monetary policy, uh, uh, then uh, the Reserve Bank uh, won't be the main cause of underperformance in the years ahead. Did we get to frightened about the idea of wage inflation uh, because it used to be a real bogey when it was talked about if we think back into the 80s and 90s uh, there was a lot of sort of concern that wage inflation was uh, threatening to get out of control but we had a much more unionized workforce than we do now is is are those two periods strictly analogous is there a lower level of of militancy and industrialization in our labor force um likely to mean that that threat isn't quite as dire as it might have once been perceived as? Well, certainly the change in the structure of the labour market, much much lower levels of, uh, uh, of unionisation, uh, change the nature of inflationary pressures in the labour market. But, but the big difference is that we ran uh, uh, much higher uh, 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 tendencies towards uh, excess demand uh, uh, through the 70s and uh, uh, and early 80s, and it took a long time to break the inflationary expectations that came with that. Um, uh, inflation was a real worry uh, uh, and had to be dealt with, uh, but it hasn't been the main concern in the last quarter of a century, uh, but we've uh, continued to uh, set up all of our monetary policy guns to fight inflation when uh, the real enemy was something else, was unemployment. Yeah. Now, we haven't got too much time left, but I do want to go to another one of your key levers in there and, and one that I think a lot of people are very interested in. Um, among your most dramatic suggestions is a version of what many people call a universal basic income. Now, in some senses, we arguably already have that in the sense that we have unemployment benefits and other income support for people uh, unable to participate in the labour market. Uh, and of course, we have a tax-free threshold, which means that you don't pay any income tax up to I think it's eighteen thousand two hundred, and then less than a slightly less than a, a dollar out of every five for any income earned after that until about forty five thousand um, dollars. So, could you just talk to what it is that you're proposing and what's kind of how, how it goes beyond that? Yes, uh, I'm proposing the integration of the tax and the social security systems, uh, and. Uh, 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 it, 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 it could be called a basic income tax. It could be called a negative income tax. Uh, uh, both of those terms have a bit of political colour in them. The negative income tax, of course, was uh, proposed by the Freedmans uh, uh, and was uh, uh, seen as uh, highly uh, beneficial by the right wing of the uh, economic policy debate. Uh, the basic income tax favoured by those who... Uh, have a more de social democratic view of uh, what's uh, uh, appropriate in economic policy and therefore uh, 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 people who have a stronger emphasis on uh, government intervention to uh, create greater equity, uh, the, the concept has no political colour. Uh, uh, it's just a more efficient way of achieving everyone's objectives uh, and it, uh, it, it's built around the idea of paying everyone all Australians, except those on high incomes and high wealth, and uh, uh, I talk about what those levels might be, uh, a basic income into their uh, uh, bank account every fortnight, 
Uh, and then uh, taxing income from the first dollar, there's no tax-free threshold, but at a moderate rate. And I, I uh, talk about two possibilities, 37% or 32.5%. Uh, in that way, we remove disincentives for people to go from part-time to full-time employment, very powerful disincentives uh, that have discouraged um, uh, especially second earners from uh, uh, full participation in the labour force. Uh, I think that removing that uh, will be very important at full employment. might not matter much to uh, uh, economic performance if you've still got a lot of unemployment, but at full employment it'll be crucial to make the economy bigger, to get rid of those disincentives, uh, and so it will, uh, to a significant extent, uh, pay for itself. Uh, the other benefit is that uh, it becomes a supplement to uh, wages for people on low incomes, a means that you don't have to secure equity uh, through increased wages uh, instead of uh, uh, bolshevik unionists uh, demanding more. Uh, uh, they'll get more through these fiscal uh, processes and uh, there'll be less disincentive for employers taking on uh, low-skill uh, uh, workers and so uh, expand uh, in- employment growth. Uh, it will be costly to begin with. Those costs will uh, fall over time as we get closer to full employment uh, and more people are employed as a result of the reform. My assessment is that uh, by the time we've got full employment, uh, the costs of this measure will be smaller as a proportion of the economy uh, then the costs of introducing John Howard's GST, where a lot more revenue was given out uh, to the states, uh, to uh, uh, households as income tax uh, cuts, uh, than was collected by the GST. Now, just got a, a couple of couple of very quick questions to ask you. One of them is just about the this, the nature of. The debate. Now, you've proposed a, a, a whole series of really innovative ideas here. You've done a lot of work. You've been around the public policy debate all of your life. How do you rate the state of intellectual life in Australia, of, of, of what you might call public discourse around ideas? Is it frustrating for you to be doing this kind of work, to be pumping these ideas into the system and not see them sort of seriously engaged with by the political class? Oh, I don't. I I I don't think that any important ideas are uh, uh, readily accepted by everyone uh, w- without a lot of discussion. Uh, uh, you might remember, Mark, I was writing and talking about uh, the advantages of uh, uh, reducing tariffs of free trade uh, a couple of decades before Bob Hawke did it. Uh, so uh, uh, it takes time. Uh, uh, I, I know that. Uh, these things don't necessarily come easily. Um, uh, And I think that uh, a necessary condition for good policy in a democratic polity like ours uh, is that people are putting the ideas out and discussing them. Uh, And uh, another necessary condition is that you have leaders who can pick them up and run with them. Uh, We we don't have that uh, obviously at the moment, but uh, but sometimes you can be surprised and uh, sometimes when the conditions are right, uh, leaders will pick up uh, uh, ideas that are in the public interest and run a long way with them. We, we can point to a lot of examples of that. Uh, we do know that uh, reform in the public interest is hard, uh, that uh, we also know in our democratic polity it's possible 
Uh, it's possible when uh, uh, good ideas have been thoroughly discussed in the public arena. It's possible when uh, you have leaders who are prepared to put the public interest above uh, partisan and sectoral interests and uh, take a long-term view. And it will only work for them if uh, they're prepared to put a lot of effort into public education themselves. Uh, and it will only work if the ideas as a whole are seen broadly in the community as being fair uh, that's uh, th- those elements have been there in our earlier periods of periods of successful reform. Um, they they may be there uh, in, in the year ahead. I certainly don't rule it out, and uh, I'm uh, looking forward to seeing how the discussion unfolds. So just keep plugging away. Final question, and it's just a uh, sort of a, a short thing, I suppose. But I had Graham Smith and Yun Zhang on the uh, on the podcast not so long ago, both China experts, and we were talking about you know issues around the problems with the bilateral relationship and the like. I asked them at, at the end of that discussion what they felt, what state they felt the relationship would be in twelve months from now. Both of them said they thought it would deteriorate. I wonder what your answer to that question is. I I don't see any uh, uh, immediate uh, uh, fundamental improvement. Uh, uh, It may be, at the moment, uh, things are particularly bad, so uh, you are a real pessimist if you think they're going to get worse than that. Uh, In the US-China relations uh, are showing some complexity now, uh, with the Biden administration being prepared to work, work constructively with China on issues where the both sides recognise there's a common interest, and um, for there to be uh, uh, confrontation on other issues, uh, to to get that sort of nuance into our relationship with China would be uh, a step forward, and I, I think that's not beyond possibility. Roscano, thanks so much for taking the time to be with us on Democracy Sausage. Your book is called Reset. Restoring Australia After the Pandemic Recession. Uh, it's available from La Trobe and uh, it's it's well worth a read. There's some, uh, t- uh, just a treasure trove of terrific ideas in there and very well argued they are too. So thanks so much for, uh, for, for giving us your time. And uh, lots of ideas there about uh, how grasping the zero emissions opportunity can can help us to get to a good place. Yes, we probably should have spoken a bit more about that um, perhaps another time. Anyway, that is uh, Democracy Sausage for now. Thank you for listening. Until next time, which will probably be Friday this week um, uh, when uh, it'll come out rather than Thursday. And don't forget our Twitter handle if you want to get to us. It's at Apps Policy Forum. That's at APPS Policy Forum. The email is podcast at policyforum.net. And you can get us on Facebook as well if you type Policy Forum Pod into the search bar. So until the end of the week, bye for now. It's the Kia Summer Sticker Sales Event, so give your friends something to look at. Like a and b with an ocean view, an endless field of wildflowers, or a sunset that needs no filter. Make this a summer to share and save with a capable Kia SUV or powerful sedan. See your local Kia dealer or visit Kia.com to learn more. Kia, movement that inspires. 
Call 800-334-KIA for details. Always drive safely. Sale applies to purchase of specially tagged 2024 vehicles only. Quantities are limited. Must take delivery by 7824.